Welcome back to Mark's Madness, now part of Chunkaluta. Wee! <laughs> I don't know. I pictured the pig from the progressive commercials, you know? Oh, God. It's <laughs> the worst commercial ever. It is. I don't know if y'all remember, but back in the day, Progressive used to have an even worse mascot where it was just a pig going, wee, 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 all the way home. One one pun from one dorky commercial and just like grew. And it just would play for two minutes on the TV (laughs) in between shows. Maybe not two minutes, but it felt like that. Yes. Anyway, uh, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Um, we give and, terrible cold openings, quoting commercials. <laughs> we, <laughs> um, and we are back to reading uh, a Stuart Hall reader um, that was put uh, together for us by Perez. Who's here? Not a Stuart Hall reader. Our, it's a Gramsci, it's a Gramsci reader. reader. This section is by Stuart Hall. On, on Gramsci's relevance. Yes. It's the preamble. Yeah. The preamble. <laughs> Um, And as we do this, of course, before we dive in, because things will come up during the reading, but we want to make sure we hit on the important ones and can focus on the reading and tie things back as they're appropriate. We are going to talk about current events. Um, It's it's kind of a big day. Um, We don't have a lot of information on the ICWA ruling, so we're not going to touch on that too much, although that's the most important thing in our minds here. Yay, genocide's on the table again. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but there's some other things to talk about. Um, the the first one, I think, is in Philadelphia, uh, where infrastructure funds have just been funneled to cops, as is, you know, how this country works. And because of that, the infrastructure has failed and a bridge collapsed on I-95. Oh, the overpass, not even the overpass. I'm sorry. Yeah. I wish it was just a bridge. Instead, no, it collapsed two sections of the fucking highway. Mm hmm. (laughs) Because the cops are a racketeering group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which I, it was like terrifying to see some of the, because like there was smoke billowing up from this thing as it was going. It was. I watched somebody filming as they drove over it and I went, yeah. That's that's terrifying. That's <laughs> you drove over it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of brings me back to like the, the flood of ninety three and people talking about just getting past bridges and uh um like uh, my the family. flood of ninety three and the Missouri yeah, is yeah. not doing good. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> because they, I mean you have these disasters, it's like a lot of people who through it are like, oh. I just came across that. I just, I just drove down that highway. It just got me. And that, I don't know. That's what came to my mind when I saw that video. Um, I think but, just real quick yeah. uh, for people who aren't in the U S and also people who are in the U S the scale of the importance of I 95 in the country, 110 million people drive over it a year. And 40% of the GDP of the entire United States drives down i-95 <laughs> i i didn't even realize the gdp statistic there that's incredible so this uh, is a real big fuck up yeah jesus um and and speaking of u.s diverted funds away from the needs of people and infrastructure damage uh there's also stuff going on on the other side of the world where Basically, a war crime has happened. There is uh, a dam called the Kakyava 
um, or Kakova um, hydroelectric power plant. Uh, it's on the Dniprio River, um, and it like it leads down to through Kursion and then out into the the Black Sea. Okay. Um, obviously, you know, anything that happens here causes immense flooding, um, which can kill people anywhere downstream, um, even including, you know, um, it can, it can affect, uh, Crimea, um, as well as a lot of the Russian speaking area of, uh, what is Ukraine there between a lot uh, of their power comes from that Mm -hmm. in Crimea. Yes. Yes. Um, but the, the Ukrainian region that the Russia occupying now between the Dniprio and Crimea. Um, Crimea is, of course, you know, annexing is Russia properly because the the people's vote. Um, they get power, uh, yeah, immensely from that hydroelectric plant. It, Russia it's, built I mean, it, didn't they? they? They as the Soviet Union, they did. Yeah. Um. So during the days of the Soviet Union, just like Nord Stream One, like Nord Stream Two was built by by um, capitalist Russia. Although I think it was even started by by the Soviet Union. Um. But the Soviet Union built the original Nord Stream, built this dam, um, and things that have been blown up since this war started that are, are massive points of infrastructure uh, to get power to Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine. Um, and, of course, you know, to export uh, natural gas to, to Western Europe, those are all being disrupted. And it, it just, it's getting blamed on Russia, and there's people, like, floating, like, was it a natural disaster versus an explosion? It was very obviously an explosion. Um and is getting blamed on Russia. And it makes about as much sense as Russia destroying their own business with the Nord Stream that the U.S. openly wanted to call for a war for. Um, you know, again, Russia has made Crimea part of it. This is something Ukraine disputes, but but Crimea is part of Russia. This has a massive negative effect on Crimea. Russia is defending the Russian-speaking uh, regions. Um, and, and you know, so this is all kind of part of the, the Donbass, right? The Donbass has the Luhansk, the Donetsk, and um, this region between Kursion and Mariupol um, that sits just north of Crimea, that's all Russian speaking. And these are the people that the Ukrainian Nazis are openly, openly wanting to genocide, that they were f- hurling bombs at for eight years before Russia uh, invaded. Right. And now we're supposed to believe suddenly Russia is the one that that wants this war crime happening against them as Ukraine is is very clearly fizzling out in the war. So. It makes no goddamn sense. It's about as true as the Nord Stream shit. And it's because people don't care about the war. They're getting tired of the war. They're seeing through the bullshit. And this is attempting to be, um, you know, a, a good good little like yellow journalism rah-rah moment, right? This is supposed to be the, the Lusitania of getting America behind this war. Um, and then the last, was there one more thing? I feel like there was one more thing I want to talk about. I don't know. My brain is pudding. <laughs> so I guess with that, we can get back into the reading. Woo. So we're at the top of page 41 slash slide 21. I don't know what people are looking at in the reader we've provided. Because <laughs> we've had to break it up. It, it says 41 at the bottom. It is page 21 of the reader. Well, yeah, but you got to think there's some stuff before this in the reader that we've already read, and mm-hmm. they got they got the full thing. Yeah, we've broken this up, so it's just yeah. confusing. Anyway, would would Prez like to begin? Sure. I before that, I've heard that there are complaints about 
my microphone. <laughs> if you want to buy one for me, that's perfectly fine. But before that, you're going to have to suffer that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Every state, he therefore argues, is, well, quote, is ethical in as much as one of its most important functions is to raise the great mass of the population to a particular cultural, cultural and moral level, parentheses, or type, which corresponds to the needs of the productive forces for development and hence to the interests of the ruling class, end quote. Values Notice like here. petty theft are so evil <laughs> and rugged individualism. Notice here how Gramsci foregrounds new dimensions of power and politics, new areas of antagonism and struggle, the ethical, the cultural, the moral. How also he ultimately returns to more, quote unquote, traditional questions, quote, needs of the productive forces for development, unquote, quote, interests of the ruling class, unquote but not immediately or reductively. They can only be approached indirectly through a series of necessary displacements and relays. That is via irreversible, quote, passage from the structure to the sphere of the complex superstructures, end quote. It is within this framework that Gramsci elaborates his new conception of the state. The modern state exercises moral and educative leadership it, quote, plans, urges, incites, solicits, punishes, end quote. It is where the block of social forces which dominate over it not only justifies and maintains its domination, but wins by leadership and authority the active consent of those over whom it rules. Thus, it plays a pivotal role in the construction of hegemony. In this reading, it becomes not a thing to be seized, overthrown, or quote-unquote smashed with a single blow, but a complex formation in modern, in modern societies which must become the focus of a number of different strategies and struggles because it is an arena of different social con contestations. Just a quick side note. Fuck Foucault. If anything, this paragraph is like a perfect condensed reason why we should just throw, throw Foucault in the trash. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I was also going to say, like, uh, especially right now, um, with regards to the state and things we need to fight with various strategies, legalism in the terms of ICWA is the current strategy we're fighting the ongoing indigenous genocide. Um, but they're making their ruling today and will most likely overturn it at the behest of oil companies. So we need a new strategy to continue fighting that same battle. So we're going to get to this in the readings, but when he says new strategy, he doesn't just mean violent struggle. He does say war of maneuver and war of position. The war of maneuver is as it sounds, you're engaging through armed struggle. The war of position is what Stuart Hall is referring to right here. It's that not only do we have to fight the Supreme Court fucking uh, supporting oil companies and all that, we have to do a whole cultural and political education campaign 
to get people essentially to actually hate the Supreme Court and actually see that the shit is fucked up. To understand how much extra, I mean, it's not even extrajudicial. This is the judiciary system. This is how yeah. it works. They just exactly. have complete control over the country. They get appointed by a president mm-hmm. for life, and they are meant to maintain control no matter what presidents might do. You know, and yeah. that's all they've ever done. You can look at the Marshall trilogy. You can look at uh, Roe v. Wade. You know, the non-codification of Roe v. Wade. You can look. I mean, there's countless examples where the Supreme Court has way overstepped the bounds yeah. of what's portrayed in civics class. You know, <laughs> I, I'm going to bring in some parenti here, which seems pretty excessive when we can break this stuff down ourselves and we have Graham Sheeta line it out for us extremely well. Um, but there's a good quote by. Parenti, where you know we talked about oh everybody says the, the the ruling class doesn't care what you think the the only thing they care is what you think and that's why they work so hard on all the propaganda and things of of that nature that's what we need to combat in that war of position right we need to reposition morality where choking someone out for begging for food on the subway is more wow. wrong than begging for food on the subway and and the moral harbinger isn't past criminality versus being a soldier. You know, and it's specifically that this is the discourse. I hate the term discourse, but like (laughs) this is what this is what is put out by all of the educative frameworks that Stuart Hall references that Gramsci talks about the media fucking Eric Adams being a dick. All of these structures exist to do propaganda, but also to remind people that this is the system that needs to be here. It, it educates people. This is like you grow up watch seeing the news briefly from your parents, having it on and all of that, that stuff. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I apologize for any background noise. It's 80 degrees and I can't really shut the windows. <laughs> um, Okay. Just turn on an air conditioner. Uh, they didn't put an air conditioner in my house. Yeah, before. I feel like that's pretty normal in yeah. Europe. Yeah. And the windows are giant, so I can't even get one of those stupid-ass uh, in-apartment units. Anyway. What do I mean? You, have you seen the ones that go on the ground with the tubes? Yeah, that's what I mean. My windows are designed in a way that I can't actually put that in. Yeah. That's dumb. I know. That's really dumb. I know. Okay. So anyway, back to back to Gramsci. We're complaining about air conditioning here. It should be now clear that <laughs> Vroom Vroom. Now... I know. Oh there it is again. <laughs> Ah, oh, Christ. It should now be clear how these distinctions and developments in Gramsci's thinking all feed back into and enrich the basic concept of hegemony. Gramsci's actual formulations about the state and civil society vary from place to place in his work and have caused some confusion. See Perry Anderson's The Ant... I can never pronounce this. The Antim... Timony, the Antimonies of Antonio Gramsci, New Left Review, 1977. It was a long-ass essay, and it's been put into a book. 
It's also in the New Left Review, so we can disregard it. No, no, I'm kidding. Well, Stuart Hall actually founded the New Left Review, so... Rip. Yeah. And Palance is published in there a lot, so it's not all uh, that. <laughs> look, I'm just saying they had some poor views of Rodney. Yeah, yeah. But there is little question about the underlying thrust of his thought on this question. The, this points irrevocably to the increasing complexity of the interrelationships in modern society between state and civil society. Taken together, they form a complex, quote-unquote, system, which has to be the object of, of a many-sided type of political strategy conducted on several different fronts at once. To you, the use of such a concept of the state totally transforms, for example, much of the literature about the so-called post-colonial state, which has often assumed a simple dominative or instrumental role of state power. He's, he's criticizing like Chakrabarti and, and that branch of post-colonialism. In this context, Gramsci's quote-unquote East-West distinction must not be taken too literally. Many so-called quote-unquote developing societies already have complex democratic political regimes, parentheses, that is, in Gramsci's term, they belong to the quote-unquote West. Next page, please. Yeah, so this is... Sorry, yeah, I forgot you're I said, not reading your own. <laughs> so this this assumes... Um, that uh, or I, I assume this is talking about like anything from Israel to Australia when it's saying like not literally like that the West versus the global South as it's kind of used today. People tend to not really contrast West and East and North and global South. It tends to be West versus global South because that tends to be pretty prescriptive for people understanding things. Yeah. Even uh, then it's still very confusing for people and they do not actually understand that dynamics at play they don't understand that settler colonies have colonized (laughs) people well you can literally just call it european and understand that it's derived from europeans and then we'd be done that's pretty much what hall was saying gramsci's analysis Yeah. yeah i mean no but like the fact that they're not saying that is just so yeah. irritating because it's like Just say it. It's white people. (laughs) You can read uh, Stuart Hall's The Whites of Their Eyes and The West of the Rest if you're more interested in this. Sweet. I'll have to check it out. (laughs) In others, the state has absorbed into itself some of the wider educative and quote-unquote leadership roles and functions which in the industrialized Western liberal democracies are located in civil society. The point is therefore not to apply Gramsci's distinction literally or mechanically, but to use his insights to unravel the changing complexities in state civil in state slash civil society relationships in the modern world and the decisive shift in the predominant character of strategic political struggles. Essentially the encompassing of civil society, as well as the state as an, as an integral as integral arenas of struggles, which this historical transformation has brought about. Just in another essay, Stuart Hall says we cannot, I forget if I'm doing the exact quote, but 
we cannot pick up this Sardinian and put him down in our modern modern context and assume that he's going to be directly applicable. Insert any of the theorists. Stop yeah. doing that. <laughs> An enlarged conception of the state, he argues at one point, parentheses, stretching the definition somewhat, must encompass, quote, political society and civil society, or hegemony protected by the armor of coercion. He pays particular attention to how these distinctions are differently articulated in different societies. For example, within the separation of powers characteristic of liberal parliamentary democratic states, as contrasted with the collapsed spheres of fascist states. At another point, he insists on the ethical and cultural functions of the state, raising the quote, the great mass of the population to a particular cultural and moral level, end quote, and to the quote, educative functions of such critical institutions as the school, parentheses, a positive educative function, close parentheses, and the courts, parentheses, a repressive and negative educative function. This is what we were talking about with the Supreme Court and, and that stuff. Shut up and let the book read. You so you say. <laughs> Mark's madness tradition. <laughs> All right, I'm done with the commentary then. No, no, I was talking about for us. It was a shut up uh, and let the book read moment, just 10 minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> These emphases bring a, sh- a range of new institutions and arenas and arenas of struggle into the traditional conceptualization of the state and politics. It constitutes them as specific and strategic centers of struggle. The effect is to multiply and proliferate the various fronts of politics and to differentiate different kinds of social antagonisms. The different fronts of struggle are the various sites of political and social antagonism and constitute the objects of modern politics when it is understood in the form of, quote-unquote, war of position. The War of position is the cultural kind of battle and political education stuff. The traditional emphases in which differentiated types of struggle, for example, around schooling, cultural or sexual politics, and institutions of civil society like the family, traditional social organizations, ethnic and cultural institutions, and the like, are all subordinated and reduced to an industrial struggle condensed around the workplace and a simple choice between trade union and insurrectionary or parliamentary forms of politics is here systematically challenged and decisively overthrown. The impact on the very conception of politics of politics itself is a little short of electrifying of the many other interesting topics and themes from Gramsci's work which we could consider, I choose, finally, the seminal work on ideology, culture, the role of the intellectual, and the character of what he calls the quote-unquote national popular. The national popular is just the hegemonic dominated group. The, the popular people. Yeah. The common sense in the Gramsci yeah. use, right? Yeah, the common sense party. <laughs> <laughs> Gramsci adopts what, at first, may seem a fairly traditional definition of ideology, a, quote, conception of the world, any philosophy which becomes a cultural movement, a religion, 
a faith that has produced a form of practical activity or will in which a philosophy is contained as an implicit theoretical premise, end quote. Quote, one might say, he adds, ideology on condition that the word is used in its best sense of a conception of the world that is implicitly manifest in art, in law, in economic activity, and in all manifestations of individual and collective life. This is followed by an attempt to clearly an attempt clearly to formulate the problem ideology addresses in terms of its social function. Quote, the problem is that of preserving the ideological unity of the entire social block, which that ideology serves to cement and unify, end quote. This definition is not as simple as it looks, for it assumes the essential link between the philosophical nucleus or premise at the center of any distinctive ideology or conception of the world, and the necessary elaboration of that conception into practical and popular forms of consciousness affecting the broad masses of society in the shape of a cultural movement, political tendency, faith, or religion. Gramsci is never only concerned with the philosophical core of an ideology. He always addresses organic ideologies, which are organic because they touch practical everyday common sense and they, quote, organize human masses and create the terrain on which men move, acquire consciousness of their position, struggle, etc. Just a brief aside, we're going to see in the actual Gramsci writings that he has kind of an obsession with the Catholic Church. <laughs> I mean, he's a, I feel like you should. Like, it's a yeah, and he's in Italy, yeah. So. And yeah. then they help well, the fascist a ton, like. Well, that's not why he's interested in He's interested in the, the stranglehold that the Catholic Church had over everyday life in Italy. Well, yeah, mm. but you think how Catholics help fascists. As by, <laughs> I mean, by the end of it, it's quite literally the same conversation. Like, the fact the Catholics had such that control over Italians' everyday life is part of why fascism was able to proliferate itself so effectively in Italy and I would argue a similar function is happening oh, here in the United definitely. States Christian fundamentalism with Christian from, fundamentalism yeah and and um and it's it's largely carried by especially evangelicals but also I uh, want to specify the white suburban catholic church sure i mean like a lot of the like evangelical <laughs> Is a very broad term. Right? It, it like, is. It is. Anybody who goes and spreads their message, and the Catholics in the white suburbs love to do that. They love to go down to the inner city and be like, hey. "Oh, now it's a little more specific than that. It's a broad block." Oh, I mean, of, I'm going with my Protestants, yeah, but yeah experience with the Catholics specifically here. Uh, they oh, would yeah. Do our alternative school all the time in order to try to preach to us. And, <laughs> When the younger pastor, well, younger priest came in, uh, fucking, he would always come down and play basketball with us, yeah. trying to be like the cool priest. You know who else was physically <laughs> active? Mussolini. <laughs> who? I was gonna. I was making a joke about the youth pastor, Jesus Christ. Oh, oh <laughs> no! Yeah, he sits down backwards. <laughs> so I'll take over from here. You've been reading a while. Okay. This is the interrupt me whenever you want. The side asides are why you're here. I have I clearly have no problem doing that. 
So this is the basis of Gramsci's critical distinction between quote unquote philosophy and quote unquote common sense. And I actually made reference to that earlier. I should really shut up and let the book read. <laughs> ideology consists of two distinct quote unquote floors. Uh, the coherence of an ideology often depends on its specialized philosophical elaboration. But this formal coherence cannot guarantee its organic historical effectivity. That can only be found when when and where philosophical currents enter into, modify, and transform the practical everyday consciousness or po popular thought of the masses. The latter is what he calls common sense, quote-unquote. Quote, common sense is not... Co is not coherent, it is usually disjointed and episodic, quote-unquote, uh, fragmentary and contradictory. Into it, the traces of, quote, stratified deposits, end quote, or more coherent philo philosophical systems have sedimented over time without leaving any clear inventory. It represents itself the, quote, traditional wisdom or truth of the ages, end quote. But in fact, it is deeply a product of history, quote, part of the historical process, end quote. Why then is common sense so important? Because it is the terrain of conceptions and categories on which the practical consciousness of the masses of the people is actually formed. It is the already formed and quote, taken for granted, end quote, terrain on which coherent ideologies and philosophies must contend for mastery, the ground which new conceptions of the world must take into, take into account, contest, and transform if they are to shape the conceptions of the world, uh, of the world, of the world of the masses. Sorry, yeah, I guess that does make sense. Anyway, I don't like how they did that. And in the way became historically effective. Every philosophical current leaves behind a sediment of, quote, common sense, end quote. This is the document of historical effectiveness. Common sense is not a rigid and immobile, but it is continually transforming itself, enriching itself with scientific ideas, with philosophical opinions, which have entered ordinary life. Common sense creates the folklore of the future, that is, a relatively rigid phase of popular knowledge at a given place and time. Uh, the Prison Notebooks 362. I don't know what FN means, five. What the fuck? Footnote. Ah, there we go. She has Man. a lot of footnotes. The best writing has footnotes, not very notes. long run on sentences and a million footnotes. That's going to be me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like my writing except i don't take enough notes <laughs> same no <laughs> everything i have to do is notes written though just because like i'm like i remember i learned it from somewhere so i have to just find the citation so gramsci's over here gramsci's all. yeah gramsci's <laughs> over here fucking <laughs> doing early cocaine and whatever sardinian prison he was in where was he held in prison he was uh outside of rome Okay, so not he was so just anything. doing stream of consciousness, remembering quotes directly from Lenin and all of that shit. He <laughs> Literally <laughs> podcast on paper. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. This yeah. podcast on paper. I think that's why Gramsci's so great. He's the original podcaster. Nobody even knows. Don't that. be mean to him. He's my favorite. <laughs> it's not being mean. I'm a podcaster. Thank you. In this room, it's not an insult. In some of our group chats, it is. Anyway, 
It is this concern with the structures of popular thought which distinguishes Gramsci's treatment of ideology. Thus, he insists that everybody is a philosopher or an intellectual insofar as he or she thinks, since all thought, action, and language is reflexive, contains a conscious line of moral conduct, and thus sustains a particular conception of the world, though not everyone has the specialized function of the quote-unquote intellectual. Uh, and parentheses, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I hate how many parentheses and quotes there are in this. Holy shit. But in addition, a class will always have its spontaneous, vivid, but no coherent or philosophically elaborated instinctive understanding of its basic conditions of life and nature of the constraints and forms of exploitation to which it is commonly subjected. Gramsci described the latter as its quote unquote good sense. But it always requires a further work of political education and cultural cultural politics to renovate and clarify these constructions of popular thought, quote-unquote common sense, into a more coherent political theory or philosophical current. This raising of popular thought, quote, is part of parcel of the process is part and parcel of the process by which a collective will is constructed and requires extensive work of intellectual organization. An essential part of any hegemonic political strategy, popular beliefs, the culture of a people, Gramsci argues, are not arenas of struggle which can be left to look after themselves. They, quote, are themselves material forces, end quote. Prison Notes 165. I, I think it's really great that we're having, and this is a, a part of Gramsci I've been wanting to get to for a long time, but we're having a, a discussion of common sense. Oh, this is my while, favorite thing about Gramsci. Right. And and we're having discussion while reading Gramsci's theory, and that, that's what's contrasted here, right? Common sense being an accumulation of, of views based on, you know, personal um, experiences, based on what's what's popular. And the whole point of philosophy is to jar people from that common sense. And so their common sense can be something more applicable. The whole like, you know, oh, you don't need to tell people they're oppressed. Well, no, you don't. But you need to tell them that like this systemic problem that we've thought about that no, that's not being affected needs to be affected. You know, you you can distill it. Well, um, so one of the biggest examples we have in a real time political struggle is the mm-hmm. salmon discussion. Mm-hmm. And so in Alaska, an indigenous woman for the first time beat out Sarah Palin specifically because of this discussion. You know, there is a common sense that is uh, accessible through Mm -hmm. indigenous philosophies, which also are probably one of the more constituted counter hegemonic forces in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we actually do have power, (laughs) you know, unlike leftists, uh, because we're nations of our own. Uh, and we've maintained some of that political power. So uh, we're not starting from zero. So maybe an alliance should be reached, right? Uh, <laughs> just saying. Uh, but um, that same thing uh, I have found in the Pacific Northwest when discussing with white fishermen the ongoing salmon struggle, because uh, all the white fishermen who subsistence farm off salmon, well, subsistence fish off salmon up there, are aware that the salmon aren't coming back too. Okay, but they are reactionaries and ended up blaming the natives. And so, like, back in the 60s and stuff, when the fishing struggles were going on, um, you would have signs saying, save a fish spear in Indian, held by hippies and reactionaries alike. Um, so it's like... Hippies are yeah. reactionary. <laughs> yeah, hippies are reactionary, right? <laughs> but, like, you know, uh, 
the common sense, so to say, uh, or at least the Lockean common sense, um, would dictate that hippies are supposed to be progressive or whatever. But in reality, the actual common sense, understanding how uh, white supremacy plays a huge functional role in this country. From the beginning, you're taught anti-Indianism and to celebrate our genocide. I mean, literally, the amount of people I have to have an argument with today that right now your country is deciding whether or not to continue our genocide. You know, like, it's just casually on the table. And we can all clearly see why. You know, we can see that it's oil companies backing these parents. These parents are individuals who are just trying to adopt these kids. That's all they're trying to do. It, <laughs> you know, there there are people who would call me an ethno-nationalist for saying that white people shouldn't be allowed to fucking adopt our kids. But in reality, it's a literal act of fucking genocide. Yeah. Like the, the cognitive dissonance to call me the ethno-nationalist by you trying to adopt our children you don't know what ethno-nationalism is. You're quite literally projecting what it is. Onto oh, us. well, on top of that, like, you know, again, we should have massive problems with nationalism. Let me be clear what I'm saying here. You should know what the problem is with ethno-nationalism, right? It's not bad because it's ethno-nationalism. It's bad because what ethno-nationalism actually means, which is by it's nature, genocide. Yeah. So, so it's not... You know, you, you it's not about the ethnic nationalist. It's right. about it's about the genocide that is, yeah, is inevitably tied to it. There's no escape from it. Why would you oppose that by supporting genocide? It makes zero sense. Like I literally have a liberal saying that I'm a foaming at the mouth Nazi for pointing out that his Supreme Court is literally ruling on the genocide of our children today. Mm. That makes zero sense. Liberals dumb. Yeah, and you you could even go back to like uh, and and this is a common sense thing. He was talking about the morality, right? The morality at, at at some point in the United States for many people was anti-miscegenation, and and that was that the moral struggle. Don't you know? Just like we see with trans people corrupting children, it, you know, it was don't let black people corrupt your your bloodline and and whatever. And well, right um, now, like it's the white savior thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's, oh, we're actually doing good by adopting these kids. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not, well, and, and again, so it's pivoting, it's deciding what the morality is. And that's, that's an important part of, of common sense and why we have to have these philosophical struggles. Um, but also, uh, what I was going to say is the problem with that anti-miscegenation, why, why it's bad is because it's racist and why is racism bad? Because it harms the victims. It kills and impoverishes black people in, in the example I'm talking about, but, but any racial minority, uh, against white supremacy, you have to know, like, what the issue is. And that's not to say these things that are inherently bad, that should be thrown out whole cloth um, because they're the most evil forces on earth are okay. But you should understand why they're bad, right? The Nazis weren't bad because, Hey, they, they were East of here and the U S want to went on to war with them. And, and we can say the word totalitarian or whatever the hell, right? They were bad because they attacked Jews and gay people and Romanis and workers and trade unionists and, and, you know, all kinds of people participated in a Lieben's realm or manifest destiny to the East. It's almost like they repeated the American model. Right. Very explicitly and and, and said that. Um, But like, you have to understand why they're bad, right? It's, it's good to understand that they're bad. It's good to understand that they're so horribly bad that there's no debate over it and no salvaging it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't understand 
why they're bad so that you can actually build the morality around that. And so it, it thus requires, wait, yeah, that's where I was. Yeah. It thus requires an extensive cultural and ideological struggle to bring about or affect the intellectual and ethical unity, which is essential to the forging of hegemony. I did it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm proud of myself for that one. <laughs> a struggle which takes the form of a quote on quote, well, quote, a struggle of political hegemonies and of opposing directions, first in the ethical field and then in that of the poli of politics proper, end quote. Prison notes three three three. This bears very directly on the type of social struggles we identify with national, anti-colonial, and anti-racist movements. In this application of these ideas, Gramsci is never simplistically quote-unquote progressive in his approach. For his example, he recognizes in the Italian case the absence of genuine popular national culture, which could easily provide for the groundwork for the formation of a popular collective will, which, uh, which is... Sorry, I'm just going to say that's also a similar case in the U.S. We do not have a collective culture. It's a lie. The closest thing we have is a mass consumerism that we all participate in. That's not a fucking culture. That is a culture, though. <laughs> com com no, I'm being serious. Common it's sense not. is the culture. And the well, culture is fucked up, alienated. Everything no, but I would say the common sense isn't there isn't a collective common sense in this country. Uh, the UP compared to lower Michigan, vastly different places. And Michigan compared to the rest of the country, vastly different place. The closest I can think to Michigan that I've been to is the Pacific Northwest. I mean, like the vast differences in cultures, like actual common sense is very different depending on where you're at. Especially oh, like say in the, the Southwest where water is scarce compared to the material conditions that the uh, Midwest are in where water is plentiful. Like I there are vast differences in even the material. Clarification. Are we talking about indigenous nations? Or are we talking about, I'm talking about everything. This country okay. is not cohesive. There is not a cohesive uh, identity. Just like in Italy doesn't actually have a cohesive identity. The closest you have is this common sense. And that's barely a thing. Especially here, it's just based on consumer choices. We can go on about this forever, but, so I'm good. Sure. I mean, it's a debate to have, but yeah. I'm just saying there's definitely a very like, sure, there's the groundwork for the formation of popular collective will that could be laid by embracing this fake American identity that we can track its origins back to like, oh, Twain and freaking Teddy Roosevelt. But we understand that it is an invented thing, right? It's something that's invented. Sure, it's trying to become the mass culture, but it can't actually, it's not maintaining hegemony anymore. It's no longer the actual common sense in this country, if it ever was. I mean, it's very debatable if it ever existed. It just seems more like a mythology. Well, so the, I'll say one thing and so, and then I'll stop. So we don't sure. get so sidetracked. So the, the common sense of a nation, there's two things with Gramsci. He calls Southern Italy, a col and we're going to read this in the Southern question. He calls Southern Italy a colony of Northern Italy because they are so culturally and economically different. With common sense too, though, 
you can have a unified nation with regional differences with the underlying common sense. So, and if you don't have that, you're going to have like people always trying to be separatist. And that was happening a lot in Southern Italy until it was militarily squashed multiple times. The underlying common sense in the U S is this consumerist, but also this whole bullshit that we mentioned with the Supreme court and supporting indigenous genocide and well, and then there's the element of a constant separatist movement here as well. Not only natives, but you have black people in a constant state of wanting to separate as well as whites wanting to separate. I mean, <laughs> well, the, you're making the black- my argument. <laughs> okay, let, let's just go back to the Stuart Hall. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. This country is a sham. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Where were we? Uh, uh, much of his work on culture. Okay. Much of his work on culture, popular literature, and religion explores the potential terrain and tendencies in Italian life and society, which might provide for the basis of such a development. He documents, for example, in Italy, the extensive degree to which popular Catholicism can and has made itself a genuinely, quote-unquote, popular force. Get, ooh, I want, that's interesting. Because it's very similar here, I guess, with the Christianity. That is the most popular force that's unifying. Giving it a unique importance in forming the traditional conceptions of the popular classes. He achieved the same with heteronormativity and patriarchy, right? All informed by Christianity here. Um, He attributes this in part to Catholicism's scrupulous attention to the organizations of ideas. Yeah, okay. Especially to ensuring the relationship between philosophical thought or doctrine and popular life or common sense. Gramsci refuses all notions that ideas move and ideologies develop spontaneously and without direction. Like every other sphere of civil life, religion requires organization. It possesses its specific sites of development, specific processes of transformation, specific practices of struggle. Quote, the relationship between common sense and the upper level of philosophy, he asserts, is assured by politics. Uh, how would I politics? How do I do that? Because it's not quote unquote, right? Because I'm ending the quote. Yeah, it's, it's just a quote within a quote. Okay, damn it. So it'd be like quote unquote end quote. That's how you would say <laughs> that. Yeah, That's dumb. Somebody needs to edit this better. Well, it's it's not meant to be spoken. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> That's right, I guess. It's meant to be read. Major agencies in this process are, of course, the cultural, education, and religious institutions, the family and voluntary associations, but also political parties, which are also centers of ideological and cultural formation. The principal agents are intellectuals who have a specialized responsibility for the circulation and development of culture and ideology, and who either align themselves with the existing dispositions of social and intellectual forces, parentheses, traditional, quote-unquote, intellectuals, and parentheses, or align themselves with the emerging popular forces and seek to elaborate new currents of ideas, parentheses, quote-unquote, organic uh, intellectuals, and parentheses. Gramsci is eloquent about the critical function in the Italian case of traditional intellectuals who have been aligned with the classical scholarly or clerical enterprises and the relative weakness of the more emergent intellectual strata. Hmm. So because of the church's level of organization, they represent a more effective means of hegemony? Yes. 
They help okay. define common sense and hegemony. For organic intellectuals, he means like us. Lenin when he was writing stuff. The people right. who create and are based in the popular masses rather than the yeah. ones who are dictating from the top what it means to be moral, what it means to be a man, all of that kind of stuff. Right. Okay, so it's like horizontal philosophy versus hierarchical almost. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Gramsci's thinking on this question encompasses novel and radical ways of conceptualizing the subjects of ideology, which have become an object of considerable contemporary theorizing, as we've demonstrated <laughs> in our conversations here. <laughs> he altogether refuses any idea of a pre-given unified ideological subject. For example, the proletarian with its correct quote-unquote revolutionary thoughts or blacks with their already guaranteed current anti-racist consciousness. If only that was still the case, huh? Uh, Thomas Sowell. Anyway. <laughs> um, where was he? <laughs> he recognizes that the quote-unquote plurality of selves or identities of which the so-called quote-unquote subject of thought and ideas is composed. He argues that this multifaceted nature of consciousness is not only is not an individual, but a collective phenomenon, a consequence of the relationship between the quote unquote, well, the quote unquote, the self, I hate how that reads, and the ideological discourses which compose the cultural terrain of society. Quote, the personality is strangely com composite. End quote, he observes. It contains, quote, Stone Age elements and principles of a more advanced science, prejudi prejudices from all past phases of history, and intuitions of a future philosophy, end quote. Prison Notebook 324. I also like, like I, it's how you mention it. You really can jump around to piece together the theory, right? Which is fascinating just to yeah. see how far back sometimes he jumps in relation to ideas pertaining to one another. I this do. is also what Gramsci calls folklore. Okay. Versus common sense. Yeah. I do. I do like how too, there's a deep understanding that even within a group, there's radically different, you know, I mean, we, we talk about this with the, the Patsies all the time, right? Identifying with Marxism, Leninism doesn't guarantee you, the the left revolutionary ideology that that comes with right. it you know and and we have the passage <laughs> yeah and the same thing with being you know um anti-racist um or you know against anti you know lgbt discrimination or any other you know prejudices is is not actually a guarantee that you don't hold other print uh prejudices or that you don't undermine all of that with liberal views um, you know, it's a matter of working these things all together for a coherent revolutionary ideology and movement. And that's going to vary for sections of people and and for individuals within those sections. And that's why, you know, things like democratic centralism have centralism involved. Even with those things, you can be composite. You can be anti-racist, but only for a specific group. Or you can be queer like you can be a gay man but hate lesbians. Or yeah. very common right now is the LGB trying to throw. Oh god, yeah. yeah. Or the people. LG. 
Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. They're like mm-hmm. these beliefs only don't replicating work. heteronormativity yeah. just with queer people. <laughs> these, yeah. these things don't even have to be coherent within themselves, let mm-hmm. alone between mm-hmm. themselves. That's where you get the, the not even coherent within itself. You get the the trans exclusionary radical feminist. It's not even a coherent feminism if it's attacking other women and non men. It's not truly feminist. And we've seen, you know, obviously a lot of them are just flat out. Uh, reactionaries that claim feminism, but there's some amount that push for uh, certain women's rights and really do care about that. But then it doesn't encompass all women. It's just cis women or cis straight women. Or say the, you know, 1920 or yeah. Suffragette movement where they fuck. Yeah. yeah the Susan B. Only white women types. Yep. <laughs> um, so anyway, Gramsci draws attention to the contradiction in consciousness between the conception of the world which manifests itself, however fleetingly, in action and those conceptions which are affirmed verbally or in thought. And so I guess that's sort of like the distinction we were arguing about, huh? Is that the world doesn't manifest itself as people say it does. Yeah. Yeah, There's people holding different ideologies than they they claim <laughs> right. um, because of social pressures and then there's of course incoherent ideologies that are pieced together with contradictions all well, mixed in there in a big old bag well a lot of the okay. problem is like the baseline here is white supremacy right right <laughs> everything's built on top of that so. <laughs> yeah there's there's unfortunately the big common sense right now um, so like a lot of people do not realize the white supremacist views they might hold where they just naturally proclaim that yes, America was progress by virtue of, cause it's, it's not like Indian nations didn't have access to the same technology at the same time as it was being developed here. You know, <laughs> actually we developed some of it for you. So crazy enough. It's almost like we developed together. I'm going to need some food <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah, I get Like, the only advancement they had was muskets when they first showed up. And even then, by the time the 7th Calvary's fighting us, we had the better guns. We had repeaters that could get off 15 shots. It doesn't matter how accurate they are. We got 15 shots off the time it took you to get two. So <laughs> you're going to die. <laughs> That's why uh, uh, American Horse described the battle of Greasy Grass or Little Bighorn as taking as long as it takes a starving man to eat. That's how quick it was. Because fucking just hubris. Anyway. Yeah, Gramsci draws on the verbally thought. This complex, fragmentary, and contradictory conception of consciousness is a considerable advance over the explanation by way of quote-unquote false consciousness, more traditional to Marxist theorizing, but which is an explanation that depends on self-deception and which he rightly treats as inadequate. Which is true. It is a false consciousness we're describing, but it's at a systemic level. And when we have uh, examples of CIA directors saying that they're going to make sure the population thinks everything that's a lie is true, it's way more than a individual lie to yourself convincing yourself that the world's not how it is it's quite literally systemic on every 
aspect. Well, yeah, it's also, it's not just that every worker thinks they're a temporarily disaffected billionaire. It's that these workers are looking like, you know, oh, I'm American. I don't want to be from one of those poor countries that we pillage away from. Oh, I'm, I'm white. You know, I've got to, got to make sure my whiteness keeps me on top. And so it's not just a false consciousness. It's a poorly placed, uh, but very true consciousness that is counter-revolutionary and destructive broadly. And that's what we need to break into a more cohesive, productive consciousness um, for what affects all of us. The implicit attack, which Gramsci advances on the traditional conception of the quote-unquote given and unified ideological class subject, which lies at the center of so much traditional Marxist theorizing in this area, matches in importance Gramsci's effective dismantling of the state on which I commented earlier. In recognizing the questions of ideology are always collective and social, not individual, Gramsci explicitly acknowledges the necessary complexity and interdiscursive character of the ideological field. There is never any one, uh, there is never any one single unified and coherent dominant ideology, which pervades everything. Gramsci in this sense does not subscribe to the Nicholas Abercrombie et al. The dominant ideology parentheses, the dominant, I, dominant ideology thesis um, published by Boston, Allen and Unwin 1980. I'm very sad that there's not a Fitch in that Boston Allen and Unwin. <laughs> call the quote, quote, we'll call the quote, the dominant ideology thesis, end quote. His is not a conception of the incorporation of one group totally into the ideology of another, and their inclusion of Gramsci in the category of thinkers seems to me deeply misleading. There coexist many systems of current currents of philosophical thought. The objects of analysis is therefore not a single stream of quote-unquote dominant ideas into which everything and everyone has been absorbed, but rather the analysis of ideology as a differentiated diff, diff differentiated terrain of the different discursive currents, their points of juncture and break, and the relations of power between them. In short, an ideological complex ensemble or discursive formation. This question is, quote, how these ideological currents are diffused and why in the process of diffusion they fracture along certain lines and in certain directions, end quote. Yeah, so this is like the, the Republicans don't have to be totally unified. There's there's the DeSantis bros, the uh, the MAGA, you know, Trump. You got the log and, cabin Republicans who are like, yeah. Who are probably where a lot of this anti-trans shit comes from. Let's be honest. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, you, you of course, you know, still have the old school Tea Partiers. Um, <laughs> Dude, I mean, uh, most of them got to get in by up by the Q. Oh, most too, most but. of them are in QAnon, or, or are they? Too? Oh, there's QAnon specifically. And, oh yeah, that's a whole but, thing. Yeah, and sometimes like, and then QAnon like, itself is. Yeah, and you you would get like mega chuds that would look at the QAnon people like those people are crazy idiots and I would never you know and then they'll vote right up with them and carry you know uh, carry water for the same narratives right um, and and you know by the same token not just Republicans you get into like Democrats suddenly immediately unify around official US enemies around anti-homelessness um, and being pro-cop um, and you know denial of, of things such as COVID 
right now. Uh, and then they'll break right back off when they have a conflict over things like abortion. And then they'll get right back in line uh, again. And you can't convince them, like, why do you keep siding with these guys 98% of the time and 99% of the time if you're against them? They'll, they'll just co, you know, they'll go in and out and then scream about how dare you not know the difference and not care about the difference um, between them and the, the further reactionary people. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's something complex and it, it broadens and narrows dynamically with with time, with the groups involved, with the subject at hand, uh, even though we can see broadly the direction these things go. Um, which means this is probably a, a, a pretty good place to stop. Um, and so do we have anything else we want to simmer on with this, um, Prez or Shigmani too, or should we start hitting plugs? Uh, I'll just say real quick, we talked a lot about nationalism and implied a lot about nationalism. Uh, there's this uh, Turkish guy, Ibrahim Kaypakaya. Uh, he wrote something called On the National Question, and it's specifically about the Kurdish national question and the contradictions of supporting a Kurdish independence movement uh, with their nationalist tendencies and an internal bourgeoisie and what, how we support that kind of stuff. Um, that's actually a very good reading on that can be applied to what Shugmani too talked about and what we generally talked about today. So it's a, it's a free PDF on foreign language press. Woo! Go check. They're great, by the way. If you don't know about them, Forward Language Press has so much great resources. Um, oh, yeah. If you're listening to this FLP, please send us stuff. <laughs> I, I, will, I will do anything for free uh, desk copies of books, please. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed. If you uh, like what we do and want to support us further and maybe get Prez a new mic, uh, I recommend going to the Patreon, which has been changed to the Chunkaluta Network Patreon, finally. <laughs> um, uh, we finally recorded the very first episode of the new podcast, and we'll be launching that, and um, should be pretty great. Anyway, uh, check that out. It's going to be just called Chunkaluta, probably. I don't know. Or maybe the Chunkaluta Project. I don't know. The Chunkaluta Podcast. Something will figure it out okay anyway uh other than that uh twitters we twitters we have uh at chunkaluta 1973 at marks madness pod and then at marksy marks two is that right yes nice nice anyway i remember it huh gmail you can hit us up uh chunkaluta 1973 at gmail or bands of turtle island at gmail.com that's still active it's like my personal email though <laughs> now 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 it's not associated with this crap um and then you have marks madness pod at gmail.com right and then um uh, there is a discord server the official discord server for marks madness is free all you have to do is go to the twitter and you can get access to it or email it, email us, I guess. <laughs> Just go to the Twitter. It's easier. Uh, or if you support the Patreon, you get access to the unofficial Marks Madness server, but the official Chunkaluta server. And so that, uh, you know, puts you in access with the many podcasts 
that are part of the network now, including Upstream, Decolonized Buffalo, Revolutionary's Garden, Mark's Madness, the Chunkaluta podcast, an ever-growing number and variety. Oh, the Red Game Table. Um, a lot of great people involved, a lot of principal comrades do a lot of great things um, that are fun to listen to and hopefully hit a certain uh, niche or itch that you have. Um, and uh, we'll be working on you know, paying transcriptionists to make these things more accessible for the website that's launching later this year, um, as well as uh, updating Mark's Madness to a YouTube format to make it more accessible. YouTube's also opened up a podcast section on their music app, so now we have to get on that. <laughs> the list of shit to do is ever-growing. Anyway, so check that out. And there's also going to be like a gardening TikTok YouTube channel launching too, um, in partnership with Revolutionaries Garden to kind of show off the many gardens and farms involved in the Chunkaluta network already, um, which is something super awesome to say that our biggest problem is money and not labor or land. You know, <laughs> so, you know, I'm pretty proud of that, that we've gotten access to all of this shit for free. Um, mostly, I mean, whatever the podcast has brought in some money and it's pretty good, but Joe Biden really fucked everybody over with the new tax code as well as, uh, student loans. So wait, what did he do with the tax code? Uh, you got to give more taxes for cash app and shit. Uh, yeah. Oh, and then I lost the original Twitter. So go follow the new one. Shame on me. I'll not be an idiot on this one, hopefully. And uh, yeah, anyway, uh, help us out. Uh, we're making a GoFundMe to support uh, uh, a summer charity thing. Uh, not really charity. So it's we're sending a bunch of comrades out to the reservation to plant some um, permaculture things uh, to basically help create fuel alternatives and cheapen the cost of winter fundraising, which is thousands of dollars to keep people alive out there. And uh, it's not a solution, obviously like the solution is fixing these homes, making them better and actually helping these people in a way that they'll remember forever, you know? Um, and so a lot of it is we help the traditional communities out there, um, which is what well, my family's traditional headsman of, the nation and we hold on to uh, Matthew King's treaty papers and stuff. So we play a pretty huge role in just helping people in general. A lot of people come and live on our land and stuff in tents uh, all summer long. They get paid to help in various ways. We feed everybody during Sundance for five days. Um, you know, we get people where they need to go and, that's a lot of money when you consider how far you sometimes have to drive. Like it's 30 minutes to the closest store from our house. Uh, well, that's not true. The closest one is like 10 minutes away, but it's costs three times as much as the one 30 minutes away. So cheaper to go to the one 30 minutes away. <laughs> so uh, all these are many reasons to help and more wherever growing. We're also working with, Unity struggle unity to produce the clarion. So uh, that money goes towards that. And that passes out um, radical literature while we do these uh, events, uh, as well as I go around um, bushwhacking and stuff uh, with 
people from all over the world. Like we happen to know like one of the top 10 kayakers in the world. <laughs> it's a long story, but he's from Brazil. So we, we gave him some shit and kind of, uh, commie pilled him. Uh, so <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, there's, yeah, I don't know. There's a billion things going on and it's all worth supporting in my opinion. And it's hard to keep updates on everything, um, which is why the Chunkaluta network exists and why I'm trying to get a website and stuff where it can be constantly updated with progress for the various things we're doing that are easily publicized. Right. Um, like we're, trying to get a grant right now for a Buffalo Prairie to end the profiteering of white ranchers on Sundances, which is, um, you know, like $800 to $1,600 a Buffalo is a lot of fucking money for people whose income is $2,000 a year. <laughs> you know, that's half the income to feed these people every year. You know, and like, I don't think people quite understand the sacrifice that like my family makes every year to provide an actual experience that's adequate for communal healing, um, which is what it's all for. I mean, there's, I forget the name of the book, but you can go read about it. If you want to learn the specific methods or whatever, there's plenty of videos and shit. Leonard Crowdog, actually, even my uncle has pulled out David Swallow Jr. So Go check it out. Um, you know, I don't know. It's worth helping, and we just need the help. And it's annoying to beg all the time. Today kind of sucks. It's not really a day I want to beg because Iqua and shit. <laughs> help out. <laughs> okay? <laughs> just have some perspective, okay? <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that's all the plugs I could give. Uh, there's a million of them, obviously, always. And that's why Dave it had to continuously say, well, when Shimonitu's back, we'll know what the heck's going on. Because <laughs> <laughs> I am I literally am probably the only person who knows everything going on in the network. And it sucks. It's just due to things at their infancy. And it's changing, but it takes time and it's building. Well, it's not even... it's forcing a bunch of shit to work together. I mean, it basically it's building a bunch of bridges and communication networks to make it easier for everybody to understand what's happening all at once. And that just takes time and a lot of labor. I cannot explain to you how much labor it takes. Uh, I, and I kind of took like the last month off just cause I've had a bunch of real life shit going on. <laughs> so it's been a mess okay <laughs> but now i'm back at it back in the groove and but the issue is is once sundance comes up again that's another two three weeks of my life gone just helping the people you know and i mean it's a good thing but also that means the one person who knows everything that's going on is going to be absent for fucking three weeks you know <laughs> That's a struggle. So I hope you understand why it's urgent to get the website up and stuff like that. Like if we can hire more web developers, the quicker the website can come out right now. We have one web developer working on it full time. The other person just volunteers their website. Well, their, their time on backend things. Um, so, and cause front end developing is way harder. It's there's so much shit going on anyway. Anything else? <laughs> 
Nope. I don't have anything. So um, just, you know, obviously get out there and, and um, you know, organize, but also everything that, that you wanted to is plugging, make sure you give. And that's something you can do, even if you don't know where to go or what to do yet. Uh, and that's the big thing. It's, I, don't, I don't even want your money. It's just if you don't have any idea what else to fucking do, just give us some money. We'll figure out what the fuck to do with it. Don't worry. Like, it always goes to somewhere good. Mm-hmm. I mean, ugh, I don't know. It's just so frustrating because we could use more hands and more help. But obviously, it's kind of fucked up to use people's labor and never pay them. That's the mm-hmm. issue. Because it's not like these websites aren't going to have a money-making function to keep them going. You know, like people deserve to get paid if you're going to make money off their labor. You Mm -hmm. know, that's like, as communists, we need to uphold that principle. And the reason I am so determined to uphold it is because I have been exploited a lot in the movement. Okay. And I don't, I don't want to see other people have that happen under my watch. If I have anything to fucking say about it. It's just frustrating. <laughs> That's how you lose good comrades. Yeah. Um, and with that being said, uh, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read oh, part of Chunkaluta. We read books. <laughs> Branding. <laughs> uh, my name is David. I'm Shumani too. I'm Prez. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Talk show. Bye.